0: Today, let me invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians, we're going to be looking at chapter 10, verses 1 to 8. And in the passage, we're looking at actually in a lot of Paul's letters, particularly his letters to the Corinthians, Paul has some interesting things to say about power that maybe turn on its head the way we're used to thinking about power. That, that conversation made me think about uh, one of the films that everyone is talking about this summer. The movie uh, Oppenheimer. Have any of you seen it? I have not yet been to the theater to, to see the film. But from what I understand from the trailers I've seen and the reviews that I've looked at, it tells the, the story of, the true story of, the physicist Robert Oppenheimer and his... Research uh, and innovation was instrumental in the United States' efforts during World War II to develop the first atomic weapon. And, and again, I haven't seen the film, I haven't read extensively about his life, but what I gather is that you know, part of what drove Oppenheimer was this desire to see this massive global conflict put to an end. Right? Part of the, the thing that drove his research to develop this weapon was his desire for peace. And the film sort of asks that question about what's the relationship between power and peace? What kinds of power, what uses of power have the possibility to actually put war and conflict to an end? And ironically, right, it's, it's in pursuit of that lasting peace that he and his team raced to create the world's first weapon of mass destruction. How do, how do we think about these questions? Not just at a hypothetical level. Right? They're not just questions that State Department is left to wrestle with. Each of us, I assume, have our own conflicts, our own battlefields that we Experience opposition in the midst of. Right? We enter into relationships, whether they're in our families, in our workplaces, in our churches, with our friends. Right, Where, where things can happen and, and conflicts emerge and we're, we're forced to wrestle with, well, how do we bring this to resolution? Is there something I can do? Is there a way of being? Can I wield some power in this relationship in order to bring it back to a place of peace. And if that kind of power exists, what is it? Where does it come from? As we look at 2 Corinthians 10 today, Paul actually talks about his own weapons. He uses the language of conflict and warfare. And he, he does that in part because he himself is anticipating returning to the city of Corinth. And in the last several weeks, we've talked about the sort of uh, conflicted and complex relationship he's had with the church there. Right? It's at times been this beautiful partnership, at other times it's, it's, it's been troubled and there's been a falling out and there's been all kinds of mistrust. So Paul knows he's he's turning his sights toward this return visit, toward the the possibility of reconciliation in Corinth. But even with the the encouraging news that Titus brought to him, that there are some seeking reconciliation and friendship with Paul again, he knows that there are still some who, who question him, question his leadership, question his character, question his authority. Paul still has... Opposition in Corinth. And so as he starts into this section of the letter, Paul is, I think, framing for himself how he's going to arm himself, what he's going to to bring with him back into that place of conflict. What kind of power does Paul look to to bring about a lasting peace with his friends there? So as we turn to 2 Corinthians 10, let me pray for us that these words might be spoken to us as well. Lord Jesus, we long to be a people shaped by who you are, by your life, even by your death, and most importantly, by the nature, power, glory of your resurrection. Pray as we study these words, that the words my mouth proclaims that the, the conclusions and convictions that each of our hearts lands upon would match who you are, would be pleasing to you. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Let me read 2 Corinthians. Let me start with verses uh, 1 and 2 in chapter 10. Just before this, remember, Paul has made an appeal to the, the Corinthians about uh, restoring their friendship and their relationship. He's made an appeal just before this for them to be generous in this, this offering and collection he's gathering for the church in Jerusalem. And so now he's, he's grounding by what authority he's making those appeals. He says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid with you when I am face to face, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world." Again, Paul, in chapter 10 and following, is going to begin this kind of extended defense of his leadership, of the way he does things, even of his own character. And he has to do that, again, because there is this opposition in the background. There are people who don't like Paul in Corinth and who are vocal about that dislike. Unfortunately, there's a lot we don't know about that opposition. We didn't preserve their letters, probably, thank goodness, because they probably weren't very pleasant. We have Paul's side of, of the relationship preserved here in 1st in and 2nd Corinthians. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know exactly why they disliked Paul. We don't even know for sure where they came from. They may have been outsiders who, who came either from another synagogue or, or other places and, and infiltrated the church in Corinth and began to, to sort of create a, a faction of their own. More likely though, at least some of them are members of the original church there who've developed their own beef with Paul. And which has gone on long enough that it's, it's festered and it's created a kind of power struggle within that community. And whatever the, the flash points were, it led them to be on a kind of fault-finding mission with Paul. Paul didn't measure up to the expectations they had. And verse 1 kind of points to what some of those criticisms or faults were. We gather that one of the things they disliked about Paul is that he was too timid to command their respect. They wanted a, a flashy or a, an upfront or a, a sort of top-down leader. Right? If, if you compared Paul to the movers and shakers in Corinth, The people of influence in the Greco-Roman world, Paul was simply too weak. He didn't command their respect in the way that they expected him to. He lacked bravado. And so they criticized Paul on that front. They want a different kind of leader, more powerful, more bold. That is, except his, his critics said, right on the other side of the equation when Paul wasn't with them in person, when he was off on some far-flung mission in a different part of the world, he would send them these letters where suddenly they, they complained that Paul was full of boldness, full of authority, full of, of telling them what they should be doing while he was far away. And I think at that point his critics felt like, Paul, who are you to tell us what to do? Right, keep your nose out of our business. So he's summarizing their criticisms in verse 1. Too timid when face-to-face, too bold when I'm away. How does Paul answer his critics? Well, Paul could could get into the weeds. He could could debate them on these matters. But Paul instead, in verse 1, says, what if the things that you attack as my weaknesses... What if, in fact, these are the most powerful claims I have to gain your respect, to be your leader, to speak with authority? Throughout this whole letter, Paul keeps coming back to this idea that it's not our accomplishments that recommend us in the service of Jesus. It's not what we do. It's most often not even how we appear that ultimately matters. Instead, Paul comes back again and again to this idea that it's in our weaknesses. It's in our vulnerabilities. It's in those places of our greatest dependence and trust that we find power and strength. And so where, where Paul's opposition wants him to get in the ring with them Right? To wrestle with them, to to vie with them for power and control. Paul says here that he, instead, will choose to fight with the weapons, to fight with the strategies, to fight in the way that Jesus wields power. And if we look at the life of Jesus, we know that that set of weapons Jesus possesses is his gentleness and his humility and his willingness to love his enemies in place of their opposition and hatred. And so it's, it's on the grounds of these things that Paul is staking his claim for authority. He says, by the humility and gentleness of Jesus Christ, I, Paul, make my appeal to you. Paul says, by thinking less of myself and more of you, by being patient in my concern for you, by by being other-centered, by being self-giving, by being cross-shaped in my love for you. I am also going to claim power and authority in those places, so that I could lead you and guide you into the resurrection kind of power that Jesus has. That's how Paul chooses to answer his critics here in verse 1 and 2. But I wonder, how do you respond to criticism? Whether that's writ large, or maybe it's just the, the little micro-conflicts that emerge day to day. What if when, when we were being tempted and, and, and sort of baited and drawn into an argument, when others question our motives or question our qualifications or question our decisions, what if we actually believed that the gentleness and humility of Jesus Christ were the most powerful things we possess in those moments? I think we would discover, as Paul says next, that they are are weapons of a kind that God has given us to heal and bring peace to relationships. with me at verses 3 through 6. Paul continues. He says, "For, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, The weapons we have, the weapons we use, hold divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought, every plan, every scheme to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Paul says this is his battle plan, so to speak. This is how he thinks about the use of power. John Chrysostom, probably the the greatest preacher in the ancient church, 4th century church, in his commentary on this passage, says that the world possesses certain kinds of weapons, certain understandings of power. And that typically, they're connected to things, he says, like wealth, like glory, like cleverness, right? Being smarter than the next person, using half-truths, and flattering others, right, To, to gain their favor. He says most of the weapons that we tend to look to are designed to make us appear powerful and to make our opponents diminished, right? To eviscerate them, to attack them, and to tear them down so that we're on higher footing. Likely, these are the the kind of weapons Paul's opponents were using against him in Corinth. Right? Look how great we are. Look how wise we are. We know from other parts of the letters that some of them were probably saying, look how wealthy we are. Look at all the things we possess that Paul doesn't. And on the other hand, look, look at Paul. Right? He's not much to look at. He lives a life of difficulty and suffering. He's not very impressive in person. Right, these are the weapons of, of warfare that the world turns to. But in the heat of conflict, Paul insists that we need a different kind of strategy, a different kind of engagement. Paul says, though we live in the war, live in the war, live in the world, let's not wage war the way they do. And I think the, the primary concern Paul has with this other way of, of doing battle is that typically when, when we build ourselves up in order to tear someone else down, we are targeting our attack on another person. We're seeking to, to tear down a human being. And the problem with that is that every single human being, regardless of, of what they believe, of, of what they have done, of the decisions they have made, Paul knows they are made in the image and likeness of God. And so when we attack another human being, when we set our weapons against another human being, we're actually setting ourselves against God. We're going to war with God who created that individual. And so Paul says, let us not attack each other. Let's not even attack our enemies. Instead, instead he says, Jesus has given us weapons designed to attack strongholds to tear down strongholds of human pride and sin and if you look at these verses 4 and 5 Paul is actually borrowing uh, an image from the, the kind of warfare used in his own backyard the kind of warfare he would have seen on display in his lifetime In fact, uh, in the generation just before Paul was born in in Tarsus, which was in the region of Cilicia in in this part of the world, there was a a huge conflict between the Romans and, and the people that were native to that region. And eventually the Romans came in and the way they put down the conflict was they brought these huge siege engines. And they systematically went down the coast around Tarsus and there were like in excess of a hundred fortifications, these big rock towers meant to defend the coast. And they would systematically dismantle these strongholds of power, and then they, they took into their possession more than, than 10,000 captives in those battles. Right? These, these Roman siege engines were unstoppable that they would would dismantle any kind of opposition. Paul takes that image. He he has in mind here the the image of of siege warfare and and tearing down a wall and and taking captive those inside. And it was a weapon that was used against Paul and his own people just before this, this time. But Paul subverts that image, that weapon, and he says that that Christ has his own power, his own arsenal, that is designed not to go to war against people, against those made in the image of God, but rather to go to war against the strongholds of the human heart that would divide us from each other, and that would also divide us from the love and the knowledge of God. Paul knows that that usually when when our pride is attacked, when we feel vulnerable, we we erect these walls. We erect defenses to protect ourselves in conflict. And it's pretty easy for those walls to become walls of arrogance, walls of isolation, walls of independence, hubris. Walls that that keep other people out and even keep the, the healing presence of God out. Paul says that those walls need to come down if we're to be reconciled to our true king, if we're we're to be brought back into relationship with him. And so he says our battle is is the tearing down of these strongholds. He says in in Christ we have the the power to bring every thought, every desire, every plan, everything we might scheme within our, our own minds Right, how, to, how to gain the upper footing against someone else. To bring those things back down and bring them instead into the presence, even into the, the captivity, into the obedience, into the loyalty of who Jesus Christ is. Because he knows Jesus Christ is the kind of king who pursues his enemies out of love. Out of a desire to bring peace upon the earth. I wonder what it would look like for each one of us when we feel under attack, when we feel vulnerable, to take hold of the kind of weapons Paul names here. To resist the urge to attack each other, and instead to, to bring into the presence of Christ the strongholds in our own heart, the pride in our own heart, the defensiveness of our own heart, but even Those things in the lives of our opponents. To pray for them, as Jesus tells us. To bless our enemies, as Jesus tells us. So that they might be brought into, brought brought, brought captive to his ministry of peace. In verse 6, Paul says that, that it's his hope that he might capture the obedience of his friends in Corinth, so that when he comes, to see them in person, there won't be need for, for further discipline, for, for further argumentation, for all the sort of painful stuff that comes when conflict won't resolve. Paul hopes that those things could be torn down out of an obedience to Christ instead. Because Paul, at his heart, is a church planter. Paul, at his heart, is a church builder. And I think it, it pains him to do this, this tearing down work. This dismantling work. This this breaking down of strongholds of conflict. What he says here in verses 7 and 8, which we're going to finish with this morning, is that his greatest desire is instead to build them back up. To build their relationship back up. He says, you, or at least some of you, are judging by appearances. Appearances. And this goes back to their temptation to look for power and authority in all the, the wrong places. It says, you're judging by appearances, but if anyone is confident they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we too belong to Christ just, just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord has given us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. Again, this comes back to to how do we defend ourselves when we are under attack. The next several chapters in this letter begin a a kind of boasting of Paul's where he almost, well, not almost, definitely tongue-in-cheek, almost humorously is, is beginning to lay out before them all of his qualifications. Almost to the point of absurdity. Right, if, if you want to question whether I'm qualified, here's all the reasons why. But he, he ultimately says none of those things matter. He says, if you want a reason why, I want you to trust me. If you want a reason to know why, you should, you should heed the words I'm sending to you in these letters. He says... Look to the way I have walked among you. Look to the heart I have had toward you over years and years of friendship. He says, from day one, I have used my authority exclusively to build you up, not to tear you apart. And Paul says, I'm not going to get into the weeds with my opponents. He says, I've never been ashamed of the way I've walked with you. And I've loved you, and I won't be ashamed of that now, even if it costs me, even if others use it to gain the upper hand. What I seek is to build you up. What I seek is, is for this relationship to grow. I wonder if there are, are people that God has placed in your life that you could say the same thing about. People who have consistently, over months and years of relationship, sought to build you up, sought to care for you, sought to point you in the way of life. And I wonder, have we continued to give those people authority to speak into our lives, even at times when it's uncomfortable, even at times when it it feels like it might expose or, or point to the vulnerabilities we have? On the other side of that, maybe you're in relationship with someone that 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 relationship is strained in the present moment. And there's been the the conflict of of, of waging weapons and attacks that have, have left that relationship wounded and hurt. What would it look like to stay connected in that relationship? but to do so with the the gentleness and humility of Jesus. To go about the hard work, to stay committed to the hard work of of tearing down the strongholds of pride, of hubris, so that there there might be a day where that relationship could be rebuilt and restored. May we choose to receive the, the power Jesus Christ offers us, the power of his life, surrender of his death for us and the glory of his resurrection to keep us and to lift us up into the power and the promise of his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Lord I pray that for many of us there there wouldn't be places of hardship or conflict that that we are struggling with this morning. But Lord, if if there are those places that are are hard, are vulnerable, Lord, places we are wounded, places where we need healing, Lord, help us to walk in the way of the cross, in the way of your power, in the way of your peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.